Are you a business owner, entrepreneur, or executive who's working hard at living a good story? What if you can start living a better one? Welcome to Living a Better Story, a podcast that goes deep and clears away the good so that you can be great. Hosted by Chad Burmeister and Rich Blakeman, we get you into alignment with your God-given purpose here on planet Earth. Don't settle. A better story is waiting for you to invest in yourself and living a better story. Hey everybody, Chad Burmeister, and I'm the host of the Living a Better Story podcast. Today, I've got a, a really good friend of mine who's uh, in, in, we meet in Florida at the Board of Advisors quite frequently, every quarter. It seems like every time we're, you know, turning the page of the calendar, we're back to Sarasota. So I've, I've known Trey for almost a year now. He is the managing director of Trinity Blue Consulting. They've been around since 2015 or so. So uh, work with a lot of great people. He's also the author of an amazing book. If, you, if you're looking for something to read, I highly encourage it. If you're an entrepreneur, an executive CEO, it's called The CEO Only Does Three Things. And I'd, I'd encourage you to venture to guess what those three things are. So Trey, welcome to the show. Chad, thanks for having me, man. Good to chat with you. Man, great to be here. I love doing these. I talked to Chris Daynert a few days ago, and he shared some of his story, how he was eye to eye with, uh, you know, not making it. And then I talked to Mitch Russo, who said he was 10 seconds from not making it. And so a lot of us have interesting stories through our lives. And that's what we like to kind of double click on in these conversations is, is digging into that. So before we go deep, tell us a little bit more about Trinity Blue. What do you guys, what do you help companies do? What's your core business? Yeah, Trinity Blue is our consulting business, and we do a lot of executive coaching. We do a lot of organizational design, and uh, one of the things that we've noticed throughout the years is most people want to talk a lot about their three- to five-year plan, but don't have a one-year plan. So I bet 80% of my business, uh, as far as that goes, is sitting down with people and coming up with a strategic action plan that is executed within the next 12 months. And what I continually say to people is if we do three of those, it's way better than doing one three-year plan that nobody ever really executes on. And so that's a lot of what we do is strategy, organizational design, meaning do we have the right people uh, clustered around the right uh, time horizons and the right uh, areas of competency and those kinds of things. And then I do a lot of uh, executive CEO level specifically coaching where the phone rings at seven o'clock and somebody has a problem and they need help with that problem. And so, you know, we, we, we come together on whatever those issues tend to be. So sort of in those, in those veins, we also raise, uh, you know, help people with the capital raise strategy and those kinds of things as well, which you and I have talked about before. Excellent. Got it. Um, So for our audience to get to know you, if we, if we were to look back and you go back, let's say age six, seven, eight, you're really young, right? Some of your first memories what did you, what was your passion then? Like what got you up in the morning when you walked out of your house, you were like, I got to go do this. What was that for you? Wow. That's a good question. Uh, so back then, you know, I don't know that I had uh, any anchors into the future, except um, that around uh, eight, seven or eight, you know, I loved Legos. I loved reading. I loved putting things together, be those ideas from reading or, le- you know, building, you know, fantasy worlds and, playing with my Star Wars guys and those kinds of things. And, and so looking back on it and, and doing sort of a, you know, a, a reflection back on it, it was always about, you know, all the toys and the play that I did was always about like 
consolidating everyone's efforts behind one guy so that we were going out and conquering a territory or whatever that, you know, whatever the play happened to be at that point. Uh, and then I think a lot of my life choices have been about that. So I went to law school and, you know, my education and those kinds of things have been about how do we find the right answers that benefits everybody as we move down the line. So, I love it. And so if you think about, you know, from then to now, you went to law school and now, you know, how, if you were to say there's a thin blue line between then and now, right, or a thread, if you will, maybe the line's already taken for another cause, but let's talk about the thin thread between then and now. How does, how does that relate to what it is you're helping companies do today? You kind of answered it already a little bit. Yeah, I think it's the same activity that I'm doing. It's just, you know, that lens applied to different uh, types of things. So, for example, I have a, a portfolio company that we've invested in that uh, we had a, a board meeting, the virtual board meeting this morning, and we were going through things. And the idea became at the end of the meeting that I was sort of leading the conversation and getting everybody to commit to the actions that they could take that we could increase sales in preparation of a potential additional round of funding or even an exit, but we can't have those conversations before we have the additional sales conversation. When the call kicked off, it was much more of a sort of everything is great and you know just wanted to give you guys an update. And I was like, no, we gotta get focused here and let's consolidate behind um, the CEO who's a good CEO uh, you know, so that we are really moving the needle uh, for him. We don't need to show up for an update. That's an email, but we need to show up for a conversation and a commitment. That's what this meeting needs to be. So it's it's always that same lens for me. Outstanding. I like to bring that up because a lot of people, I think, go through life and find themselves out of their comfort zone. And, they're, and, and it's just, even if it's one degree out of their zone, they could be in alignment with their God-given talents. And like you are, right? And so it, it's, I'm sure there's hard days and good days and bad days, but by being in alignment with what you're meant to be doing, it's it's important to have that kind of an alignment. I think it is. And, you know, when we were kids, you're, you're told over, if you're if you're privileged, like, like I was growing up, you're told over and over, you can do anything in the world. You're never told, like, find the thing that makes you the happiest you know, and, and, and gives you that sort of completed ego feeling, because when you do that kind of work, you never do any work. It's always play for you. And, uh, and you have to fight to find that zone in your business and your life. And, you know, I see a lot of friends of mine who never did that. They always did what they were told or what they were supposed to do. Uh, and they end up with a career that they absolutely hate. And that always spills over into other areas of life. So uh, call me triply blessed that, uh, that at least I've been able to fight uh, and, and build a, you know, a moat around the things that I want to do on a daily basis. That's, yeah, that's great. I mean, even reading your book, right? The CEO only does three things, culture, people, and numbers. So if you read the book and you're a CEO and you go, huh, I don't like people, I don't like numbers, and I don't like culture, you might need to look in the mirror and say, huh, I was a really good salesperson or I was a yeah. really good chief financial officer or right. And, and there's times you might need to, to make a, make a pivot and go back to what it is you love to do. Yeah. I've had to fire CEOs in our portfolio companies before, not often, but two, two times specifically that I can think of right off the bat. 
And both of those times, the conversation very easily was, uh, you know, I was a great sales guy. And then I thought if I go start this company, I'll have something that I really love to sell. And now I, you know, the first couple of years of the business, I did all the selling and, and now I'm having to deal with HR issues and financing issues and regulation and government. I don't want to do any of that stuff. And so oftentimes the firing of a CEO really looks like it, we're going to help you get back to doing what you really love and that you were the best at. And we're going to bring somebody in to help you you know, increase the value of the business by doing the things that you hate doing. That's a pretty easy conversation. It's always trepidatious, but when you get into it, it's a pretty easy conversation. And I've seen the guys that we've done that with sort of so, okay, it's an ego bruise a bit, but I feel better about what I'm going to be doing going forward in the future. And I think we all have to sort of hold a mirror up and, and have that conversation with ourselves. Yeah, that's right. So a lot of what we talked about has been it works for you. You've written a book, you've got this business, you, you help companies do investments. I'm sure there had to be a couple speed bumps along the way. And probably at the time, it felt a little bigger than a speed bump. Is there something that you can share with everybody that you say, you know what, that felt like a mountain at the time. And, and now looking back, it was something that I just had to go through and it made me a better person. Yeah, the three hardest things in my life was, you know, I always kind of wanted to be an attorney. I always wanted to go to law school. I wanted to solve big problems for uh, important people, you know, companies or rich people or whatever it was in my child brain that I had sort of figured that out. And um, I went in and I had a certain skill set in law school, but it wasn't the one that makes you successful in law school, you know. And uh, so after the first semester, I came home and told my dad, I'm done right? I'm not going back. I felt like such an abject failure that the thing that I had wanted for so long, I hated. I hated every second of it. I was good at most of the things, but really terrible at some of the things. And of course, you get rewarded for the some of the things that I was terrible about. And my dad said, look, you've already done half a year. Go finish the year, and then you can do something else. So I did. I packed up and moved home. And dad said, hey, you've already finished your year. You might as well finish the next two years because you've, you've gotten the hardest part out of the way. And so, you know, me having to deal with that sort of real depression, I don't mind even using that word, real depression about being in uh, that cognitive dissonance about, you know, this is what I thought I wanted to do. Now I hate every piece of it. Uh, I'm not as smart as I thought I was. I'm not as good as I thought I was. You know, those kinds of really poisonous thoughts going around in your head and you can't tell anybody because law school is a very um, competitive pressure cooker for no good reason, but it is, you know, so it was a very lonely, lonely place. That was really tough. That was really tough. Um, and uh, I can look back on it now and know that I, I developed some internal fortitude, but if I'm really honest, what I developed was the strength to say no to things that I hate and, and I just won't do them anymore. Right. And, and sometimes it makes you very unpopular. Um, I have something in, in politics right now with some people that you and I know together and they're doing something. And I said, it's not me. I hate it. I'll help in any other way. But what you're asking me to do, I'm not going to subject myself to. And they think that's very negative or prima donna behavior or something like that. And they may be right, but I'm just not going to spend my life doing things I hate. Uh, so that was the first one. The second one was I got married and divorced early. And um, that was really painful and really one of the defining moments in my life, working through the pain of, of going through a divorce. 
and uh, you know the the internal dialogue of I thought I did everything right, evidently I did everything wrong. I must be a terrible person. She told me I was a terrible person. You know those kinds of things, and you have to process through those things and and eventually come out with some better understanding of who you are. Did you make mistakes? You know, will you repeat those mistakes? That kind of thing. Um, and so that was a very ugly time in my life and not one that I like to revisit often, but uh, I'm married again to a wonderful woman and who knew all of that stuff coming into it and still decided to stick around once the ring made an appearance. And uh, that was really good. And so there are a lot of times where I start to do or say something, I say, wait a minute, you did that before, you might not want the same result again. So you learn a lesson from that. And then the third thing is I lost my dad at a young age. So my dad was 52 when he passed away very unexpectedly. I was completely pursuing a different um, path in life of, of law and venture capital and uh, corporate development work with really large corporations. So I was one of the first 100 employees at WebMD, had moved from WebMD into the venture business. That came to a screeching halt on 9-11, as you can imagine then went into how in-house with companies like Earthlink and AOL to do corporate development, divestitures, investments, and those kinds of things. And all of that was going really well. And then my dad passed away from what we now know was COVID. We didn't know it then. It was SARS-2 is what we knew it as. And he passed away from that. And I had to come into his chair in the family business and, and start over completely and get it right from the first day. And so those are sort of the three defining moments of my life that have said to me, you know, the way that you solve those three problems equals the person you are today, whether you got it right in the moment or not, you know, I can look back and look internally and say, that's, that's who made me who I am today. It, and thanks for sharing. It's, I know sometimes that's raw, right? And it's like, those are important things to, to deal with. When you're going through them, it looks like, like I said, it looks like a mountain. Looking back, you're like, oh, yeah, I made it. What, what's the, is there something that you took away from those experiences that's a common thread that you can say, you know what, I just did X, Y, and Z, and that got me through it. Like, what was that for you that made, made you get to the other side of it? So all three of those shared the same thing that the only solution that I could figure out was just putting one foot ahead of the next one. So in law school, it was, you know, if I just get to Friday, I can go have a beer down in the French Quarter because I went to law school in New Orleans, you know, with the divorce, if I can just get through the next whatever legal situation was, or now that that's all over, if I can just get to a place where I can go on a date or something of that nature, whatever it happened to be. And then, you know, with my dad passing away and me taking on all of those responsibilities, it was just breaking everything down into increments and just getting through that next increment. And the, the character trait that I developed through all of that, which of course we never can see these things in ourselves. Somebody else has to point it out. I don't quit. I never quit with something. I don't lose because I don't quit, you know? And that's, I don't mean to sound uh, pompous or anything of that nature, yeah, it's just but what I mean trait. is that you just keep doing it until you get the result. And a lot of times when, when people on the other side look at you and say, God, this guy's never going to quit. I just, <laughs> I better give him what he wants. It happens all the time. And so that's sort of a character trait that I had developed through those hardships. Yeah, that's awesome. I went to my folks' house recently. My daughter graduated from high school. So I, I went to their house and my dad, get, thank you. Yeah, that was huge. 
and now now we're going to be empty nesters around here very quickly. Um, so my dad gives me two old hockey sticks that I used to use. Um, I played roller hockey, right? Not ice hockey, but roller. And I got to be really good at it, just competitive. And so I remember the thing that I love to do is once I got so good and I'm scoring 10 to one against the other team, that wasn't fun anymore. What was fun was setting other people up. So I remember I, there was a girl on our team of all guys. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to, she's the person that I'm really going to work with. So I'd say, you you go crash the goal. I'm going to hand it off to you right when I get to the end. And then by the end of it, you know, after a season or two, she's the one coming down and drive. I go, okay, now I'm going to post up on the goal. And it was, it's just so fun when you just compete. And that's my thing is uh, like you, I just compete, right? No matter what the situation is. And when you can connect with that and go, whether I'm starting a company or a nonprofit or it doesn't matter what it is, yeah. you just take that skill set and realize that's your unique fingerprint in the world. That's Double right. down on it and don't worry about it. You've got that's it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and you're hitting on a theme that I'm really sort of uh, uh, intellectually exploring in some writing that I'm doing right now, which is why do we start companies? If you really boil it down to the, to the, to the, the most essential point, you and I start a company because we have a set of values. We have a set of things that we think should be true in the world. Those beliefs only come from our experiences. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and we think that either we've had negative or positive experiences and we've had both. We blend those together into a vision of how the world should work. And we start a company to prove to the rest of the world, like this is how things should work. And so, um, you know, people say, well, I don't have a values based organization or all of that is fluff. None of that's true. Every organization that we consult with, every organization that I talk to, uh, that's the real reason that the company got founded. Yes, mm -hmm. money is a part of it. Yes, control of my day is a part of it and how I want to live and those kinds of things. But really what we're doing is trying to live our values out loud. Yeah, that's that's really well put. I, I can't disagree. Um, this is a kind of a curveball question. So, you know, it's, uh, most people go, huh, I'm not sure. But I'll ask it anyway. What would you like to accomplish in life that would change everything for you? So my job uh, is the way that I see things right now is um, my family has always been a very hardworking family, uh, middle class, professional, white collar as much as we can be. Um, for me, I would like to affect the next three to four generations of my family by being able to turn a lot of our assets into capital assets and teach the next uh, generation on how to manage capital assets. And then uh, my, my sincere hope that in doing that, I would give them a life where they could work on things uh, without having to punch a clock, but some political issues, some social issues, those kinds of things, they would have the uh, freedom, ability, and time to be able to do that. So I actually have a family per purpose statement and the family purpose statement is around that. My job is to take hard assets, turn them into capital so the next generation can achieve things that you can't if you are beholden to customers, if you are beholden to the time clock and that sort of thing. So that's the I, mission. I love that Personally, you've been three or four. Um, if you've met Eric Donovant from Paradigm at BA, yep. he talks about our responsibility is three generations down the line. And at four that, you know, and I said, you said, I heard you say three or four, because by the time you're four steps removed, you're, you know, you're hopeful that gen, gen one and passed to gen two to gen three, 
four right. might start to get out of reach of a lot of us, I think. Very much the case. So we're at three generations right now. We just onboarded the first member of the fourth generation uh, this past week. So she wow. turned 18. She got the initial one hour sort of presentation about this is the family that you're a part of. You don't know this right now, but this is what we have. This is what we do. These are the things we believe. So we've done that. That's a two year process before she gets a vote. Uh, so we have this very scripted uh, thing that we are, are very intentional about. Uh, and then my job is to do the next three generations. Well, guess what her job is to do? The next three generations, next right? Three. So that's yeah. how you get it. Yeah, that's how you get it going. I that love way. that. Thank you for listening to the Living a Better Story podcast. Today's podcast is made possible by 77pray.com. Connect to God's miracles for your life. Visit www.77pray.com or download the mobile app at the App Store or on Google Play. There are plenty of mental toughness apps available, but only one spiritual toughness app, and that's 77 Pray. Track your daily walk with God, get prayer support on demand, crowdsource difficult decisions you are faced with, and share God's love with others. Visit www.77pray.com to learn more. My grandfather gave me something that he wrote in handwritten pencil, and I still have it. And then I copied it because it, it was fading over the years, but it was in eighth grade. And it's the top 10 things, right? Love your God, love your neighbors, yourself being the top two. And now what I felt my responsibility was is, and I was never given the speech, make sure this passes. And so what, what I'm looking at is my job is, okay, I'm going to build that into scrolls or internet or something that has some physical characteristics to it to make sure that it gets passed down. And yeah. at my daughter's graduation, read it out loud to everybody in the family. And I was like, all right, who's signing up to this? And at first there was a little bit of crickets, you know, they're like, well, yeah. and then one kid dropped. And then they all started to raise their hands. And I'm like, okay, we got the first step done, some verbal yeah. sign up. Now it's time to continue that and, uh, and move it down the line. So I love that process. Uh, we, we do something similar in sharing the values and all of this sort of thing. And we do make an opt-in decision. So the opt-in is at the end of the two-year sort of onboarding and, and indoctrination process, if you want to call it that, you know, um, then the person has a decision to make. Do they do they want to be a part of this? And, and these are the values that we will live or they don't. And that's completely and fine. That's it's okay not like too. you can, yeah. you don't take yourself out of the family. We still love you. We still support your decisions. Um, but um, those that work, you know, for and with the family uh, re receive different levels or different kinds, different types sure. of support. It's just like you're looking at lawyer. Um, you didn't like it. So if someone comes in and says, hey, this is just not, this is not how I operate. Okay, that's fine. There's 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 other people in the family who can carry the torch too. That's fine. That's exactly right. Yep. That's cool. Okay, so that's kind of the big picture change everything looking 3 4 generations down. Let's just go to 3 years. We're 3 years from now, so it's 2024 and we're at BA in Sarasota and you look back and say that was the most amazing 3 years. What what happened over the last 3 years? 
the thing that will have happened is us really fully implementing a family office strategy. So about 18 months ago, we began uh, down that path. The work that I'm telling you about right now, we began about 18 months ago, uh, getting the legal entities, getting the uh, investments placed, uh, the liquidity sort of soaked up. We've got, we had three liquidity events sort of back to back. Uh, two of them good, one of them from a sort of bad place. We have to get all of that infrastructure placed and working. And in three years, we will know, are we doing the right thing? Or do we need to take a different tack on that strategy altogether? Got it. Wow, that's deliberate. I love it. Um, is there anything at, at your business that you tolerate right now where you say, yeah, you know, you could, could do better in that? Or have you figured out, how, you know, is that just not part of your business? So in, um, in one of the businesses that we own, which is an employee benefits advisory firm, it's the old family business, 55 years old now. I tolerate a lot because I've onboarded a management team over the past three years to run that business. And I tolerate a lot of things that I would probably do differently. They're not the wrong things, but they're things that I would do differently. Um, and I'm tolerating them because those guys have to eventually walk on their own. And uh, the first year, I didn't even tell them that they were in control. I just didn't correct any of their actions. The second year, I said, here's what I did last year that you guys didn't notice, but I wanted to do it to give you the confidence that you can do it. Now, here's the second year. The third year, which is the year that we're in right now, I have been extraordinarily clear with them that these are the results that you must attain. And if you do, the rewards are very, very strong, but I want to see you get to the results. And so um, that's really what I've been focused on the last three years in that business. But I'm tolerating, some, but again, not bad things, not bad sure, habits sure. or anything of that nature, just not the way that I would do things and not so, um, I, I'm just somebody that likes a bow on every package, you know, and these guys are sort of shooting from the hip a little bit. I think it's totally natural. I think it's fine. The results are there. But for me, I like things tied up in a bow a little better than they are. So I'm tolerating that right now. I, I remember our pastor told us this simple sentence in, before we got married in premarital counseling. He said, you can do anything for any amount of time as long as you know why. Yeah. And, you know, just like your law school, just like any of it, right? Yeah. And, and yeah. knowing that you're going into it with that, I think is, even though you know it's not with the bow on it, but it's a worthwhile experiment or handing over the reins in that case that you were just talking about? So I spent, um, you know, a lot of my life saying, let me find somebody who's a high achiever and let me study that person so that I can be a high achiever. My, my focus has shifted in the past 18 months to say, let me find high achieving families and study their characteristics. Let me find high achieving businesses and study their characteristics because I want them to be true in my life as well. And one of the things that I noticed from um, uh, high achieving families, and I don't have the words around this yet, but it is that ability to sit down with someone and say, you're going to go to law school, it's going to suck. You're going to spend three years doing that. Then you're going to go to the public defender's office for two years. That's going to suck too. Then you're going to do this. But the entire vision of how you're going to spend your life adds up like this. I don't think that we do a great job, most of us, in doing that for our kids and showing them that the linear steps you take are gonna get you here. And I have a particular soapbox that I get on when it comes to marriage. 
So the first year of marriage is tough, right? You and I can behind closed doors admit that. We hope our spouses don't hear it, but they're saying the same things too. The third year of marriage is a little bit difficult because typically that's when the kid comes in for the first time. I don't know anyone who has a good seventh year of marriage, but do you know when you figure that out? In your eighth year, when everybody says, oh yeah, our seventh year was terrible too. That's wrong. That's not the way we should be doing things. We should be sharing with people up front. You're going to have these struggles. This is what it looks like when this happens. Call me, call this person, do this action, whatever it happens to be. And I don't think we do, as a society, as a culture, I don't think we show the roadmap that people are going to live through nearly as effectively as we should be doing, if we're doing it at all. Mm, Yeah, that's great. I love looking at, it's almost like, a company is like a person. And so it's just different because it's a lot of people combined into one person. And right. so I think expanding the vision to not just following a superstar person, but a superstar family, that that's extremely on point. I mean, I like Yeah. It. And I, a huge part of my consulting business for companies and organizational design is exactly saying, look, when you have three employees, these are the challenges you face. These are the tools you have. This is the mission that you have to accomplish in order to go to the next level where you will achieve higher monetary results, hire more people, have these challenges, you're trading these for this, that sort of thing. I've got that map built out. What I want is when I'm, when I'm born at age zero, somebody to hand me the map and say, you know, these are the challenges that you're going to face throughout these years of your life. And these are the answers that you may find useful in in solving those challenges. It, it makes me think of Larry Yatch's talk because it has to do with communication. Yeah. Probably the number one <laughs> piece is yeah. communication, right? Yeah. But there's exactly. a lot of other inner working parts. Okay. Um, let's see. Last couple of questions. We talked about the CEO only does three things, culture, people, and numbers. Um, what makes the difference between a good CEO and a great CEO when it comes to those three aspects? Well, obviously a good CEO is someone who reads my book. No, 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 I'm just kidding. Uh, A great CEO, great CEOs have the ability to do two things at the same time. Um, And I've seen this in um, every company that I've worked in with a good CEO, with a great CEO. I've seen it in companies um, where it is lacking as well. But the person who taught this to me was my sixth grade algebra teacher, hmm. Madeline Brownlee. I, she was 800 years old when I first knew her. You know, She had these polyester suits uh, that you could shoot bullets at and they wouldn't damage them at all. And, um, and she had this way about her where she would, she would do these two things. So what are the two things? Number one is preception. A great leader, CEO, doesn't matter, a pastor, any, any role of leadership in life, is able to look into someone else and see gifts in that person before the person can see them in themselves. It's a key thing. Uh, Not everybody necessarily is attuned to that, but everybody can go out today and find someone doing something well and say to that person, you're doing something well and I see this gift in you. The second thing though, is evoking that. So evocation, so preception and evocation. Evoking is from the Latin, phrase ex voca, to call from within. And that is one of the specific geniuses of leadership, 
to be able to look into somebody is fine. We all know people with gifts, but to be able to look into that person and call it out and say, I noticed this gift in you and I think you're going to be extraordinary in life if you pay attention to this gift. Uh, I want to encourage you in that. I'm so blessed to see you do that. Whatever that process looks like uh, in an individual interaction, it's important that we explore those two things. So when I was writing the book, and that's the conclusion uh, chapter of the book, is, is to encourage CEOs to explore those two things to be great. I shared that with a mentor of mine who worked for Jack Welch. They were peers at GE. They were hired the same year at GE, and they went through a lot of their career together. And he snapped his fingers and he said, Jack Welch had that more than anybody I've ever seen. Jack would do it to his peers. They'd be five bourbons deep at the bar and he would turn to the plastics salesman for the Southeast region or something and say, you are the best connector of people I have ever seen. I hope no matter what else happens in your life, you continue to do that and continue to put a real studied focus on doing that. And that guy became the best connector you've ever seen or not. Now, the question is chicken or the egg. Was he that before Jack Welch told him he was? Or was he that because Jack Welch told him he was? And it doesn't, it doesn't matter. matter. It doesn't matter <laughs> at all, right? right? Yeah. What matters is that's what came out of his life. And, uh, and, and that's a little flag that I love to wave for people to say, you can start this today. And you should. We have a moral obligation, in my opinion, uh, to see gifts in others before they see them themselves and to call those gifts into reality. Oh, that's so big. I, I think of sales departments where there's a couple marketers 100% of the time and they're just living in the sales department and they hate it. And there's been a few times where I'll go, hey, Lauren, let's have a quick chat. And it's like, hey, you love to send email blasts. That's perfect. You're great at it. You always keep three meetings in your drawer and you pull them out at the end of the month and hit your quota. I'm like, that should be, you should use that and, and let's get you doing the emails for the rest of the team. You're awesome at it. Yeah. Right. And then another person, Hey, you're great on cold calls. Let's let's, what if I gave you a tool that could get you to a thousand dials a day and, and I pay you a little bit more than everybody else because you're great at doing cold calls. And then you def, you know, it's like, just defragmenting the hard drive and, and exactly. shuffling the deck. But exactly. by calling it out, they love it. It's good for your business. It's good for you. It's good for everybody to get the person lined up with their talents. Exactly. And Chad, what if we did that in our families? What if we, I have an 11 and a nine-year-old. What if I went to my nine-year-old tonight and said, this is something that you have inside of you in a magnificent way. You were created with this inside of you. Dad recognizes it. Mom recognizes it. When you're not around, we talk about this. And I want you to feel free to be as good at that thing as you can be for the rest of your life. What a blessing we lay on that child's life doing mm. it. How yeah. many of us do it? It's an uncomfortable conversation for no good reason. Yeah. But we should do that. We have a moral obligation to do that every time we have the opportunity to do it. Man, I think this has been a phenomenal conversation because that really is what Living Better Story is all about. The core person who's a friend of our family's named Robert White, he wrote a book called Living an Extraordinary Life, right? Ordinary, and then there's extraordinary. And the whole punchline when you get to the end of the book is live within what your God-given talents are. So the one story, and I'll wrap it with this, he, they went out and they did an exercise, experiential exercise. And they said, go out and find somebody and talk to that person. 
Well, this one person went out and found a homeless man under a bridge, found out his story, did the exercise, brought him back to the class. The guy ended up sitting in the class the rest of the event, ended up becoming their top sales trainer. And eventually, I believe if I get the story right, took over the company, or at least was the number one trainer and had a significant portion of ownership of the business. His name was Art. And it was like, that was the same story, only this was to a complete stranger, not even someone in the wow. family and use that, what you just Amazing. Showed. Absolutely. So I used to do a, a course um, with uh, my mentor, Ron Willingham. And one of the things in that course is we would take people and put them through exercises and you know, the things that we take for granted, I, I would do this course and go to the homeless shelter and say, Get, let me have 10 people to come through this course with us, you know, this life affirming course. And very often eight of those 10 people would say, no one has ever believed in me or said that I had any gift or anything to offer in the world. And you doing that has changed my life. And they weren't talking to me. They were talking to the process of of having people do that. Uh, it, it, it's, it's something I firmly believe that we should be doing. That's amazing. Um, last question. What role does faith play in your journey? I came to faith very late in life and thank God that I eventually made it. Um, my wife knew that I, I considered myself a, a faithful person. She knew I wasn't a convicted person. And, uh, and she said to me, I will marry you, but you have to do one thing for me. You have to take me to church. You don't have to believe everything you say. I know how argumentative you can, you can, you can be. You don't have to believe everything you hear, but you have to take me. And so over a short period of time, a couple of years probably, of me sitting like this and you know disagreeing with a lot that reading, I heard. Reading your phone or whatever. Uh, yeah, no, no, I paid attention. I was there <laughs> for it. I was there for it. Um, it became simplified in a way that I could understand it. So I love complex things. And my faith decision was the simplest thing I ever had to do. I had to quit overthinking lots of other stuff and simply do the one thing that I was called to do at that moment. Um, and today we run a faith-based organization. Now that doesn't mean that I require everyone to have the same faith that I had, because if my wife had required me to have that faith, she wouldn't be my wife. And I would miss out on, on mm -hmm. most of the sweet things in my life. And so we don't require that, but we share our values, all of which are, are for my faith, biblically driven. We have 13 of them. We have 13 for a reason. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they form uh, the, the basis by which we relate to each other here. And they are all uh, biblical values that we try to live into the world. We don't have scriptures associated with each one of them, but we could because I have that research and I have those notes and that sort of thing very easily. So faith is a part of what we do. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. And when you talked about one foot in front of the other, it's, it becomes much easier when you know that you've got the wind at your sails and you can't, like there was a guy who came to the fire pit recently, Dr. Jim Wilder. He's a neurotheologist. And I was about to write a book on making good choices. And turns out he already wrote it. And I was like, huh, okay, how do you make a good choice then, Dr. Wilder? He said, well, in the Old Testament, there's 614 simultaneous laws that one must consider when making a choice. So that means it's two to the power of 614. 
He goes, you know, there's a lot of possible choices you could make. I'm like, yeah, what? Like all the grains of sand on the beach in California? He goes, no, 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 no. Every known neuron in the entire universe, in the known universe, times two times 3.14. So basically it was saying it was infinity. Yeah. Is the combination of choices. So having a north versus a south that's based on something that's been proven over thousands of years is better than us trying to define what good and bad is. So that, that's that, absolutely the case. And look, I'm the guy that can say that because I lived on one side of the fence and I've lived on the other side. And today, when I watch people go through hard things that don't have um, uh, faith, uh, the comfort of faith to be with them, I, I grieve twice for them. I grieve through what they're going through and then also the fact that they're having to do it all by themselves. And uh, I, it, in, in one of my lines of work, which is, you know, insurance and life insurance and that sort of thing, we see that frequently. And, uh, you know, obviously not the time for me to preach to anybody, but I, but I think about that frequently that, um, that it, you know, life is better if this is not the only thing we're doing. If, if we have somewhere else to spend our time at a later, at a later point, life is much different. You make much better choices yeah. in the here and now. Yeah. No back pains there. You're, you don't stub your toe. There's quite yeah. a lot of goodness that yeah. probably happens when you're on the other side. Sign me up for that. Right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> All right, Trey. Hey, this has been fabulous. If people want to get a hold of you, what would be the best way to reach out to you? So the website for consulting is uh, www.trinity-blue.com. Uh, contact information's there, some services, uh, that sort of thing. Love to hear from anybody uh, uh, looking for uh, a way to really sort of juice the performance of the organization. Uh, the book is available on Amazon. It's a CEO only does three things, finding your focus in the C-suite by Trey Taylor, uh, doing very well there. And then I do a occasional newsletter. Uh, sometimes it's five days a week. Sometimes it's two days a week. Uh, but you can get, you can sign up for that. It's a free newsletter. You can sign up for that. We have about 10 or 11,000 folks that are following that newsletter. And uh, I just hit publish on today's issue before I send it out. So Chad, you'll find it in your inbox when you uh, log off here, but uh, that's at plantyourflag.live. And uh, it's my belief that if we plant our flag, others who need to, to see what we are doing will find us uh, more easily. So we talk about venture capital and wine and whatever is of interest to me that day uh, is, uh, is on that newsletter. And we have, we have good feedback on that. So I'd love for people to take a look at that. Outstanding. We've been talking to Trey Taylor, Managing Director at Trinity Blue Consulting. Thanks for exposing and being transparent with the audience. I really appreciate you and uh, you're becoming a good friend. So I appreciate you very much, Trey. Thanks for being here. Chad, appreciate the time and appreciate the work you do with this podcast. Thank you for listening to the Living a Better Story podcast. Today's podcast is made possible by 77pray.com. Connect to God's miracles for your life. Visit www.77pray.com or download the mobile app at the App Store or on Google Play. There are plenty of mental toughness apps available, but only one spiritual toughness app, and that's 77Pray. Track your daily walk with God, get prayer support on demand, crowdsource difficult decisions you are faced with, and share God's love with others. Visit www.77pray.com to learn more.
Thank you for listening to another episode of Living a Better Story. We hope that today's show has inspired you to cultivate a better understanding of yourself so you can discover your God-given purpose and start living a better story. For the show notes, visit livingabetterstory.org forward slash podcast, where you can also find other helpful resources. Connect with us and join us again next time for another purposeful show.